0: A few weeks ago, um, the church here had a stall at the Cali Road Carnival. And one of the things at that stall was a flip chart um, by, the, by the stall with a, t- with a title, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? I think a lot of us were really encouraged by the time people took to actually write up a question. It really struck me that it showed how many people in East Oxford do have questions they want answered about life, about religion, about God, and questions they would like God to answer, even if they're not quite sure he's really there. And that play chart worked so well, that a few weeks ago we asked the same question of our Friday night youth group for 11th to 14s: If you could ask God just one question, what would it be? For those of you who don't know, our Friday night group is comprised mainly of teenagers who don't come to church, mainly of teenagers from non-Christian families, We have very little contact with Christianity. And we've got some great questions from the group. I'll just read out some of the ones we got. Why is Africa so poor? Why can't we see you? What's the point of sin? It's a very good question. Um, What's heaven like? Another great question. These are also genuine questions from non-Christian teenagers. But one question stood out for me as I thought about this passage in Amos we're looking at this morning. And the question was, again addressed to God, how do you never seriously lose your temper? I was a through confused with that question, so I asked the girl why she wrote it. And she said, well, she couldn't understand how God could look around the world and see the mess it was in and see the way we treated one another and not get really angry. And so she was just confused by this. She wanted to know why God didn't get angry. And again, that is an amazing question to ask. Why does God not get angry with the world we live in? We've already thought this morning about the events on Thursday. Why does God do nothing when terrorists set off a series of explosions in London, killing at least 50 people? Why does God do nothing about the crippling poverty in Africa that is claiming so many lies each day? Why does God do nothing about the cruelty and selfishness that people show to one another? I was even struck by that this Friday night. The same kids who were asking great questions of God were being horrible to each other for much of the night. You know, real anger, bitterness, just fighting with each other, gossiping about each other. Why does God do nothing about that? Again, the question again, why doesn't God get angry? This girl wanted to know. Well, Amos 8 and 9 reminds us that God does get angry and that God will do something about the state of the world today. He will judge sin and evil and punish them once and for all. See, often the way I deal with suffering in the world, maybe often the way you might deal with it as well, is when we are confronted with pain and suffering, we just want to run away from it. We want to retreat into just thinking nice thoughts about ourselves, nice thoughts about the world. We don't want to think about pain and suffering. But the amazing thing is the prophet Amos isn't like that. Amos is willing to look around him and to confront the injustices and sufferings of the world head on. And as we've looked at this prophecy over the last few weeks, we've seen that Amos does this with compassion but also with unrelenting honesty. He doesn't sugarcoat the situation in Israel at the time he's writing. And he doesn't deny that Israel, God's people, are in a mess. He confronts the sin and chaos of his world head on. And for these reasons, Amos can be an exhausting book to read. And I don't know how you've been finding it, but it is tough going, reading about sin, about judgment. And a question that came to my mind reading these chapters this week was, how can Amos maintain his faith in the God of Israel when there is so much evil in the world around him? How can he keep facing up to such a broken world and go on believing that God is a good God, a God of love, as he have been thinking about this morning? And the answer to that question I think, rings right throughout his prophecy, and particularly in these chapters this morning. See, Amos maintains his faith in the God of Israel because the God of Israel is bigger and greater than the evils of the world. And Amos knows that God will judge those evils in time. See, the God in whom Amos trusts does get angry and he has the power to judge I'm just going to read um, from chapter 9, verse 5. A few verses here. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, He who touches the earth and it melts, and all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. He who builds His lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is His name. This is an awesome God that Amos trusts in. See, it's been said in the past that many Christians today have a pygmy faith because we worship a pygmy God. When I was a child, there was a chorus I always loved singing, um, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing that he cannot do. But the thing is, the older we get, the more we are aware of the evil in the world, of the sin in our hearts, of disappointments in our lives, and actually the smaller our God can become. We can end up with a God who is far removed from the God of Scripture, a God who exists to make me feel good about myself, a God who is my special personal friend, but little more, a God who feels really sad at the state of the world, but who, like us, can do little or nothing to change it if people are going to keep being selfish. But I want us to see this morning that that is not the God that Amos worships. And that is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible touches the earth and it melts, verse 5. The God of the Bible builds his lofty palaces in the heavens and sets their foundations on the earth. The God of the Bible is the Lord Almighty, the Creator, Ruler and Judge, of the worlds. And it's to the Lord as a judge that Amos turns here, coming to the end of his prophecy. So what do we learn about the Lord and his judgment here? Well, turning back to chapter 8 and verses 1 to 3, that's the conclusion of a series of pictures we've looked at um, over the last week or so. Pictures God shows to Amos telling him about the state of Israel. And the message of those pictures is clear. Time is up for Israel. I'll just read verses 1 to 2. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. A basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? he asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, The time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. First of all, realize that God's judgment will come. See, God shows Amos a basket of ripe summer fruits, and it can wait no longer. It must either be eaten or thrown away. And it's the same with Israel. God is telling Amos he will spare them no longer. His judgment is about to fall on them. And when we come to a chapter like this, we've got to remember the context of it. We've got to remember that God has been patient with Israel. The long list of evils and injustices that Israel have accumulated over the years has taken place over centuries. The kings of Israel have rejected God again and again and refused to return to him in spite of the presence of prophets like Elijah and Elisha. God has given Israel plenty of opportunities to return to him, to turn their backs on their disobedient ways and to trust in him again. And the very words we're looking at this morning, the very words of Amos' prophecy is another opportunity for them, another chance for them to turn back to God. But in their pride, Israel refuses to listen to God's warnings. We saw last week that the religious establishment in Israel rejected Amos' message of judgment. Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, opposed Amos in chapter 7. See, Israel believed it was a nation that was safe it believed it had a proud religious tradition and that that tradition would keep it safe from God's anger that its religion and its temple and its worship services would keep God on their side does that sound familiar That's all see even today there are people living in Britain who believe that being born here automatically makes you a Christian. Or people who've maybe gone to churches all their lives and just presume, I am safe from God's anger. God wouldn't be angry at me. People who are proud of their religious tradition, but who are deeply hostile to any talk of God's judgment or the need to repent or the need we have to have our sins forgiven. See, Israel felt like that when it heard Amos' message. But Israel was wrong. In fact, God describes his judgment as coming especially on the people who think they're safe from God's anger. Verse 3. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. It's in the temple that God begins his judgment. See, judgment did come on the nation of Israel in the form of an invasion by the Assyrian Empire in the year 722 BC. The land was devastated. The people carried into exile. And the book of 2 Kings, chapter 17, tells us that story. And this kingdom of Israel, that Amos is addressing here, never recovered from that invasion. They were scattered around the land. They become what we know as the lost tribes of Israel. And by the time of Jesus, their descendants were known as the Samaritans They were despised by the other Jews. See, the destruction of Israel, prophesied by Amos, actually happened. It was an historical event. But also for us today, it acts as a picture of God's final judgment on the whole of creation that will come when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead see, the Bible is full of these pictures of judgment, especially in the Old Testament. Jesus and the early Christians often talk about events like the flood, like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, like the judgment on the Israelites in the desert. And they saw them as sort of trailers for the final judgment, as guarantees that God will judge in the future because he has judged in the past. And you see, God is compassionate. Amos has shown us that. God is faithful and God is patient with his world and with his people. But Amos and the other biblical writers are under no illusion. God will judge humanity. He's going to punish those who reject him. Who've rejected and hurt their fellow human beings as well. Who've damaged his world. See, God's message through Amos here is not to mistake his patience with an unwillingness to judge the world. See, for Israel, time was almost up. And what about us, living in the 21st century today? We have warnings that God will judge this world. We don't know when that will happen. But we are assured by God's word that God's judgment is going to come. And we're called to be ready for it. We're called to run to Jesus and ask him to make us ready for that. To trust in his death to forgive us and make us right with God. See, God's judgment is going to come. Even one of the most explicit promises about God's patience in the Bible acknowledges that God's patience will have a limit. These are words from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Peter writes, The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This is an amazing picture, description of God's patience and desire for people to come to him. But after verse 9 comes verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear in a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. See, God's judgment, Peter says, will come. And God's judgment, Amos says, will come. So firstly, the God that Amos is trusting in here is a judge. But again, that's not much good if he's not a just judge. So that is what Amos shows us next. See, Amos doesn't direct his message of judgment against poor, innocent, unsuspecting people. He directs it at the pride and the arrogance, at those intent on using the people around them, to make a profit for themselves. That's verses 4 to 6. Amos says, Hear this, you who trample the needy, and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat, skimping the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat." See, why is God judging this land? Well, Amos tells us. Because the people of Israel trample the needy and do away with the poor. Because the people of Israel profit, value profit and material wealth above their relationship with God. See, the new moon in verse 5. That was a time set aside for God's people to offer up burnt offerings to the Lord. But for the people of Israel, that sort of devotion to God Couldn 't be over quick enough. The Sabbath was a day set aside each week from work to worship the Lord, to remember His goodness, to remember His rescue of His people from slavery in Egypt. But for Israel, it just got in the way of making money. See, these aren 't just good, honest people trying to earn a living in God 's eyes. They are dishonest and corrupt traitors. They cheat. And exploit the poor to the point where some of those poor people are forced to sell themselves as slaves to survive. And they have to sell themselves to the very people who have taken all their money from them. Verse 6 These people are buying the poor with silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. So, why is God judging this land? Because Israel tramples on the poor and they treat the Lord with contempt. And you see, these two sins, we might think of them as two sins, but Amos doesn't separate them. Trampling on the poor and treating God with contempt are two sides of the same coin for Amos. They're inextricable to him. And I say this might be surprising because today a lot of people do drive a wedge between those two things. Between our attitude towards the poor and our attitude towards God. So we have churches and Christian organizations today who have courageously and sacrificially committed themselves to helping the poor. But often they can be uninterested in growing in the knowledge of God through his words. Or they don't care about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in its entirety with people, including the message of judgment, like the message Amos is sharing here. And then we have other churches who are passionately committed to understanding and teaching God's word, who long to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those around them, but they're deeply suspicious of getting involved in caring for the poor for fear that that will distract them from the business of sharing the gospel. I wonder where would you place modern road on that spectrum? You see, Amos' message is simple here. That division between caring for the poor and caring for the Lord is a false one. That shouldn't be a division in our thinking. See, for Amos, a godly people will be a people who will care for the poor and the needy. Love for God and love for their neighbour must go together. And in fact, it's Israel's contempt for God that's reflected in the injustice in the land. Israel's religion is the exact opposite of what the Lord requires as summarised by the Apostle James in the New Testament. Some famous words from James. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. See, the question we have to ask of ourselves as a community of Christians in East Oxford is how do we do justice to both of these facets of God's religion, how do we do justice to a concern for the poor in our society, and a concern for holiness and godliness in our own lives? The answer to that has to begin with our willingness to listen to God's word and to be changed by it in our attitudes and in our lives. See, we're living in a moment in history when suddenly, thanks to Bob Geldof and the Making Poverty a History campaign, caring for the helpless, the widow and the orphan, is actually deeply fashionable. And we need to thank God for that and pray that much good will come out of that campaign. And again, even the, the words coming from the G8 leaders this week was really encouraging to me, thinking that campaign may have made a difference already in their priorities. But let's not kid ourselves. Godliness And holiness, keeping ourselves from being polluted by the world, is deeply unfashionable in our world today, even for Christians. Instead, we desperately try to be as like the world as we can. We spend our money on the same things. We talk about the same things. We're working towards the bigger house, the better car. We live as if what other people think of us is more important than what God thinks of us. Too often we live as if this world is all there is, and God isn't interested in how we live our lives. But you see, Amos's message to us here is that God is passionately interested in what we do with our lives. Because what we do with our lives reveals what is most important to us, and God will judge us what we do with our lives. See, commitment to the poor and commitment to the Lord, they must go together. God's word puts them together and so should we. See, I for one feel deeply grateful to Bob Gelder for challenging me. Last Saturday was actually, while listening to a lot of the great music on it, I was just feeling really challenged that this atheist, self-proclaimed atheist, was actually in some ways leading me to think more about world poverty. What the Bible says is that there can be no godliness without a concern for the poor and needy, and there can also be no true and effective concern for the poor and the needy without godliness. See, when I was thinking about this, about this passage, all I was thinking was, all that Bob Geldof can offer Africa is the opportunity for it to become more like the West. Where extreme poverty is less common, though it does still happen. And where that poverty is replaced by materialism, by capitalism, and by empty and broken lives, like so many of the celebrities who were supporting that campaign. It's amazing to look around and think how many of them did have broken relationships in their own past, that they were maybe unrepentant of. See, it's a lie that our world tells us and tells itself that people can be truly happy and fulfilled without knowing God. See, Amos stresses the need for Israel to return to God while they care for the poor around them. Again, those two must go together. So God is very clear throughout Amos' prophecy here why he's going to judge Israel. Because of the injustice in the land and because of their contempt for the Lord. And God's judgment will be just. And as we've seen throughout Amos, the pride and the arrogance that Israel falls into can just as easily catch us out as Christians today. So these words are a warning to us. But I can't leave these verses without us seeing the comforts God's judgment can bring us as well. It's not something we often think about when we think about God's judgments. But maybe particularly on a week like this, when we look at the destruction caused in London, and we see the anguish caused by that terrorist attack, that actually the fact that God is a judge becomes deeply comforting. So at the end of this list of Israel's sins comes verse 7 of chapter 8. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. So the Lord promises here that he won't forget or overlook evil and injustice and that soon justice will be done in his world. And that is an amazingly comforting truth in a broken and unjust world like ours. See, Amos tells us God is watching and he will bring about justice at the end of time. We may never know who exactly was behind the London bombings. Those who planned the attacks may never be caught. But God knows who is responsible and they cannot escape from him. Dictators like Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe seem to be above the law to get away with murder but they're not above the Lord he will not forget what they've done the Lord will judge them for it some of the kids i come into contact with through the youth groups their parents have no time for them at all treat them just with contempt they ignore them totally and there just seems to be no way of waking them up to that fact. But the Lord will not forget what they have done. The Lord is watching them. See, the fact that the Lord will judge the world is actually a great source of comfort to Amos in his difficult message. And it can be a source of great comfort to us as well. One day there will be justice and because the judge is God, that justice will be perfect. It will be right, and that's why Christians are commanded not to take revenge, or to let bitterness poison us, because we're reminded that justice is in the hands of a just and good God, whom we can trust. So that is an encouragement from Amos today. So we've seen so far that God's judgment will come. God's judgment will be just. But now more briefly, we do have to confront the fact that God's judgment will be terrifying. See, there's no getting round that. There is comfort to be had. But also for those who do not know God, it will be terrifying. Amos describes the judgment on Israel in terms of God's judgment on Egypt at the time of the Exodus. At that time, God sent plagues on Egypt to show them who was the real God and to punish them for enslaving the Israelites. And now, God says, he's going to treat Israel in the same way. Chapter 8, verse 9. I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. See, God's referring there to the last three plagues he sent on Egypt, the plague of darkness the plague on the firstborn. And he's saying he's going to treat Israel as if it was Egypt, as if it was his enemy. In verses 11 and 12, the Lord issues another warning. He says, I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. So that's perhaps a surprising warning from Amos, as one of the things Israel has been so eager to do is not to listen to the words of the Lord, to ignore the words of the Lord. In chapter 2, we're told that Israel commanded the prophets, don't prophesy. In chapter 7, Amaziah rejects the Lord's message. So surely Israel had never wanted to hear the words of the Lord. So why would the threat of not hearing those words be such a threat? And similarly in our world today, It's very easy in this country to get hold of a Bible, to read it, but most people choose not to. See, why is the removal of God's word such a terrifying thing for Amos? Well, the reaction of Israel to this famine of hearing God's word gives us a clue. Verse 12 again. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. See, God's words bring life. They are like food and water to us. And to be cut off from God's words is to be cut off from life. So that's why we study God's word together every week. That's why we want to encourage one another to make time to study God's word each day. Because God's words bring life Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The one who delights in the law of the Lord is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. See, when God's word is removed, the life it gives is also removed. And the result is hunger, is thirst, is a desperate longing to get God's word back. The word that had so long been rejected by us. See, Israel had always rejected the words of God, as does our society. But as long as the words of the Lord can be heard, there is hope that people will return to God. But again, Amos is warning of a day when God will remove his words, and in so doing, he will remove himself. And God removing his words is a picture of that final judgment when God will abandon those who have rejected him to their sin and separate himself from them once and for all. We must pray that we will treasure and delight God's word and that we will long to share that with others while there is still time. I mean, much of the rest of this passage is terrifying. We won't have time to go into it. Chapter 9, verses 2-4 to though, I want just to do before we finish. It's almost a direct paraphrase of Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is one of the most comforting psalms in the Bible. It's got a promise that God will never leave His people. I'll just read a few verses from that. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. Even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. That's a deeply comforting psalm to God's people. But in Amos chapter 9, the same God who's forever with his people will be forever opposed to his enemies. 9 verse 2 Though they dig down to the depths of the grave, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens, from there I will bring them down. See, these are frightening, uncomfortable words of judgment. And they could be summarized in the phrase If God is against us, then who can be for us? So God's judgment is terrifying, Amos tells us. But I can't leave things there this morning. Partly because I don't want to, but partly because, and mainly because, Amos doesn't leave things there. Amos doesn't leave Israel without hope in the face of God's coming judgment. And he doesn't leave us without hope either. That's chapter 9, verse 8. Just read these out for us. Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. But you see verse 8 again. God will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. He will distinguish between those who treat him with contempt in their lives and those who trust in him. And even in Amos' day, amazingly, there were still people who trusted in God. So the coming day of judgment on Israel will also be a day of rescue from that judgment. And the same applies to the final day of judgment. See, God has promised he will not totally destroy sinful humanity. He's provided a way for sinful people like you and me to be reconciled to God, to be rescued by God from his judgment. And that rescue is made possible through the death of God's Son, Jesus, on the cross. And even if you turn back to Amos 8, there are shadows of the cross even there in this bleak message of Amos. Amos 8, verse 9. I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. See, there's darkness in the daytime when God judges sin. And there was darkness at noon when Jesus Hung on the cross. Jesus was taking God's judgment for our sin on himself so those who trust in him will be rescued from that judgment. Look at the end of verse 10. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. See, the day Jesus died on the cross was a bitter day. For God. See, God, the loving Father, chose to punish His only Son, whom He loved passionately, so that people like you and me could escape God's judgment and enjoy life with Him. See, the price God is willing to pay for sinful people like us is staggering. God didn't have to rescue anyone. His justice would have been satisfied if the whole of sinful humanity was judged. But God is not only just. God is gracious and merciful. And his justice and his grace meet at the cross of Jesus. God doesn't leave sin unpunished, but he chooses to punish his son instead of those who trust in his son. And then he can welcome us into his kingdom. See, Amos can leave us in no doubt here this morning. God is a God who will judge. And he is a majestic and awe-inspiring and terrifying God. But the most awe-inspiring thing about God is not that he judges. It's not that he controls this world. He rules over it the most awe-inspiring thing about God is that He is the God of the cross. The God who sent His Son to die for sinful, undeserving people like us at great cost to Himself. And the book of Revelation tells us the love and mercy that God revealed at the cross will take us the whole of eternity to comprehend. And in fact, we will never fully understand it what we can do is know this God we can know this God he gave up the most precious thing he had to save us from his judgment to satisfy his justice so that we can be made right with him Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners our response must be to trust in him and to worship him in our lives and to share that message with others.